You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. This podcast is designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, it's important you understand the content of this podcast may be difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. The information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Hello and welcome to the latest news podcast for May, where we look at the latest news and developments impacting financial advisors and their clients. My name is Craig Day, head of the First Tech team, and joining me today is Sina Heng, one of my senior analysts, Linda Bruce, who you may well be familiar with, who's one of my senior management, and also Tim Sanderson, a familiar voice. G'day, guys. Hello, Craig. Craig. Now, Sina, very first podcast, all excited? Yes, I am very much so, Craig. (laughs) Excellent, excellent. Okay, so now let's get into it. Now, this month for May has actually been quite quiet, and that's good reason is the government's been in caretaker mode since early April, and what we also generally see there is the regulators stay pretty quiet as well. However, there are a few things to talk about, so let's start with the elephant in the room being the election, or specifically what the different parties or main, relevantly, Labor announced in the election. So it, during the election campaign, we did have Labor come out and kind of make three announcements that may be of an interest to financial advisors and their clients. So, so Sina, we'll start with you. So what was the first big announcement? Hi, Craig. Yes, the first announcement relates to the downside for contribution age being reduced to age 55. This proposal was originally announced by the coalition and then appeared to be matched by Labor during an interview. However, we are yet to see any formal announcements, so this may be a watch at this space. Excellent. Yeah, so we we saw the the government come out there, didn't we, and they they kind of talked about... um, the government at the time, they talked about a couple of housing changes and one of those was to reduce the downsizer eligibility age to 55. And then what Labor did is immediately kind of matched it. And the only thing we have there is a, is a TV interview with the now Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, saying, yes, that they would see that as a reasonable policy and that they will look to support it. So we have to assume that they will also introduce that. Um, from the effective date, though, we don't know. Um, we'll have to wait and see on this one, on that one. Now, Labor also made some announcements about freezing deeming rates, didn't they, Sina? What were they? That's right. Labor also announced that they would freeze the deeming rates at the current levels for the next two years, which they say will protect around 900,000 pensioners and Social Security recipients. This is good news, as it may mean that pensioners and allowees may earn a higher deposit rates on their savings due to the forecast increases in interest rates without the additional interest income impacting their entitlements under the income test. Okay, excellent. So we're going into a higher interest rate environment because of all this inflation. So um, hopefully bank deposit rates will go up, but deeming rates will be frozen for the next two years. So people can earn a bit more interest without those higher interest rates actually coming through and resulting in a higher level of deemed income. Excellent. And finally, Labor also announced some changes to the Commonwealth Seniors Health Card Income Test. So what's happening there? Well, Labor announced that in the income test for the access of the Commonwealth Seniors Health Card, they will increase it to 90000 a year for singles. This is up from 57761 and to 144000 a year for couples, which is up 
from 92,416. Okay, so there, if we've got Senior's health card income test, that's based on adjusted taxable income as well as a deemed income from an account-based pension. So in that case, if we assume the client had no or very little adjusted taxable income because we're thinking about retired people here, um, how much could someone have in an account-based pension now and qualify for the Commonwealth Seniors Health Card? Based on the current deeming rates, we have calculated that a single person can have up to $4.05 million in an account-based pension, or a couple combined can have up to $6.48 million in an account-based pension before they'd lose the card. Wow, so that's interesting because really thinking about that, clients are very unlikely to have account-based pensions of those sizes, pretty much due to the transfer balance cap. So this would likely mean most self-funded retirees would now qualify unless they have lost lots of adjusted taxable income. So in that way, it kind of begs the question, why not just revoke the income test for the Commonwealth Seniors Health Card and make it available to all self-funded retirees as well? So anyway, that's an interesting thing. Now, we have to wait and see. These are all you know announcements that came out of an election campaign. Obviously, we'll have to see these things get up. Um, so we'll have to wait and see. I did see some suggestion um, that Labor was thinking about holding a budget in August, uh, sorry, in October um, from a technical service person that has to stay up all night writing <laughs> budget reviews. I hope that's not the case. But we may see that kind of announcements confirmed if we do see another budget in, in October. So anyway, thanks, Sina. Okay, moving on now. So the next issue I want to talk about is something that advisors probably are not that familiar with, but they may actually need to be get a little bit more familiar with it. And just maybe in the sense of you might get a question from your client about it. And this relates to the ATO releasing a range of guidance in recent months relating to family trust distribution. So if you've got a client with a family trust, there's been a taxpayer alert a draft tax ruling, as well as draft practical compliance guideline. And these all relate to trust reimbursement agreements uh, as set out in Section 100A of the 1936 Act, an act where we don't actually refer to that much these days, um, but it does have all the tax rules that relate to things like family trusts. Now, Linda, you know, trust reimbursement agreements, is this a new thing? It sounds like a new thing. We haven't heard this um, um, particular uh, issue uh, very often, but actually it's not. Um, looking back, Section 100A in the uh, inserted to Division 68, uh, 6A of the 1936 Act, that's a very, very old act, uh, that was in 1979. So mm-hmm. it has always been there ever since. So what it is. It's an um, uh, anti-avoidance provision, and that was designed to prevent a taxpayer, uh, a taxpayers from using trust structure uh, to reduce their personal tax liability. Okay, but the benefit of having a family trust is that the trust can distribute income to beneficiaries on a lower marginal tax rates, unless I'm mistaken. So is Section 110A trying to capture all of these scenarios? I hope not. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, what's the point <laughs> for family yeah. trusts to, to be exist, right? Um, yeah, no, not at all. So let's have a look at 
when Section 11A, uh, 100A could apply. So for this anti-avoidance section to apply, we needed to have a three elements. So the first element is the trust or the trustee of the trust make a beneficiary presently entitled to the trust income. Now that beneficiary will not be a minor child because minor child is subject to the higher tax rate already. So they don't really try to uh, look at a minor child in this situation. So a trust has uh, made a beneficiary who is not a minor child presently entitled to the trust income. So that's the mm -hmm. first element. Second element, now there's a reimbursement agreement. Um, and what the reimbursement agreement does is that the beneficiary who is made presently entitled to the trust income is not actually the one who will enjoy that trust distribution. Someone, someone else actually uh, will enjoy that trust distribution. So the trust make a tax distribution to one person, but another person, yet another person will actually enjoy that income distribution. Now, that's not end of the story. For this anti-avoidance provision to apply, there must be a tax benefit obtained by the arrangement. So this means um, the person who's actually enjoyed the trust distribution usually is on a higher marginal tax rate than the beneficiary who's made a presently entitled to that trust income. Oh, so that all sounds a bit weird. We're, <laughs> we're declaring a, a distribution for one person, yeah. paying it to someone else, but it's being taxed at the, the first beneficiary's lower tax rate. It, that sounds a bit, can you give us a, a simple example there? Yeah, cool. Uh, let's just use the example in the taxpayer alert uh, issued by the ATO, that's a TA 2022 slash one. If you're interested, go have a look. So in this um, uh, taxpayer alert, the ATO illustrated an uh, example, which is quite interesting. So I have a family trust. Uh, the family trust is controlled solely by the father. And the trust derives a trust income in excess of $400,000 a year, which is quite a lot. So the father uh, is already on the top marginal tax rate. So uh, he doesn't want any additional income to be distributed to him. Um, the daughter conveniently just turned 18. And the daughter, generally speaking, in that age, <laughs> age 18, would have a very minimal taxable income. So what the trustee did, the trustee made a resolution to distribute $160,000 to the daughter. However, the $160,000 is a tax distribution, so that will be taxing in the hands of the daughter at a lower marginal tax rate. But this amount is not paid to the daughter. It's actually paid to the father, to the paid to the father's bank account. And the father paid a tax on behalf of the daughter. To be honest, I don't even know whether the daughter is aware of the distribution at all. <laughs> uh, so anyway, there's a separate record that shows it's really, it has been really expensive to raise the daughter. We all know how expensive the school fees and the additional activities, et cetera, et cetera. That can be really expensive, right? So there's a, a record showing those 
past expenses can amount to as high as $315,000. So this reimbursement agreement um, says the trust distribution, any trust distribution made to the daughter will need to be paid to the father to reimburse these past expenses. So if the father were to receive the $160,000 trust distribution for tax purposes himself, he would need to pay top marginal tax rate. But because of this arrangement, it was distributed for tax purposes to the daughter. And that was paid at much lesser marginal tax rate. Um, and then that amount, because of this reimbursement, <laughs> reimbursement agreement, uh, paid to the father's bank account. Uh, therefore, a significant amount of a tax was saved by the arrangement. So that was what ATO was looking for. Okay. So in this case, you know, trust can earn different types of income. Is all trust income captured? Uh, not quite. So it comes down to what's the definition of a trust income. Uh, very interesting. Um, the capital gains or dividends were subject to a hot debate until around 2010, there's a Banford case. And ever since Banford case, the trust is able to stream capital gains and dividends. So in other words, the trust can actually make a, uh, the uh, capital gains, um, a, a, can, can, can make a beneficiary specifically entitled to capital gains and dividends. So what does it mean? That means if a beneficiary is specifically entitled to capital gains and, and dividends um, by, by the trust deed or uh, the, the trust resolution, um, that means those capital gains and dividends will no longer form part of the trust income. If it's not a trust income, then Division 6A or Section 100A of the 1936 Act has no say in it. So no, not all trust income can be captured. Okay. All right. And are there any other exclusions? Yeah. So the um, um, ordinary or commercial dealings are excluded. So, for example, uh, if the uh, the kids, the adult child or adult children, are genuinely work for uh, for the family trust and they genuinely receive a distribution, um, but they genuinely are wanting to help out the family as a group, uh, they, um, um, they 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 lend the money back on commercial terms, etc. So help out the family group. So the ATO might say, yeah, that's ordinary or commercial dealing and those kind of arrangements can be excluded. But if you want more information, the ATO has a guidance that was issued in 2014 that was about a reimbursement agreement, what is good, what is not good. Now, that has been replaced by the most current, um, the recent draft practical uh, guidance, practical compliance guidance, the PCG 2022 uh, slash D1, Craig, you mentioned earlier. Um, so from mm -hmm. um, 2022, um, this um, PCG will um, come into play. So if the daughter actually receives the distribution and the benefit of the distribution herself, that's going to be okay. Yeah, that's all my understanding, Craig. Um, if the daughter actually received the distribution for tax law purposes and pays tax, uh, and also is the one who's actually enjoyed the trust distribution, uh, we think that's okay. That's not going to attract any uh, ATO's attention. However, if there's any add-ons, any other fancy uh, uh, arrangements, that the ATO might look into it. Okay. Now, what are the consequences if Section 110A do apply? Uh, 
Uh, yeah, that should be 100A, right? <laughs> yeah. 100 uh, That's oh. right. Yeah, it's just um, as if that beneficiary who are made um, presently entitled to the income, trust income, uh, never became presently entitled to the trust income. So what's the result? The trustee of the trust will have to pay tax on that income, and that would be the at the highest the marginal tax rate. So we are talking about a 47%. Okay. All right. So my apologies. I've, I've got it down here, 110A on my notes, and that's wrong. <laughs> now, um, what, so we've already have part 4A. So why, you know, why do we need this? Oh, that's such a great question, Craig. Um, yeah, uh, looking back the cases, some of the cases were uh, that the ATO uh, or, or actually applied the Part 4A rather than look into 100, uh, 100A, Section 100A. That's that's very interesting. But one big difference between the two uh, integrity measures, uh, Part 4A, um, our understanding is the ATO has a limited review period. Uh, the currently is four years, I believe. In comparison, Section 100A has unlimited review period. Mm. So although the ATO indicated that in the most recent PCG, most likely they're not going to apply additional compliances to look at the pre-2014 arrangements, but if they want to, Section 100A allows the ATO to go back as far as 1979. They, they can if wow. they want to. Okay. So I think the moral of the story here is if you're a financial advisor, just be aware of these rules. And if you've got clients with family trusts and they distribute income, um, as long as they keep it nice and simple and if they're going to distribute to you know, let's say an adult child on a lower tax rate, you just got to make sure that they actually benefit from that trust distribution and that it's and it's not under an agreement being uh, loaned back in a way that would provide a tax benefit. So I suppose the other thing there, Linda, is if you've got clients in these situations, they're asking you a question, the advice would be go and get some tax advice. Absolutely, just to protect themselves, right? If not sure, go ask ATO what's going to yep. happen. It's always rough them. Okay, so thanks, Linda. Now, Tim, um, also, there's been a recent court case regarding superannuation benefit directed to assist dependent and the notional estate, so notional estate being in New South Wales. So here I think it was involving an SMSF and uh, and a binding death benefit nomination. But before we get into that detail, what are the notional estate rules? Yeah, so there's there's legislation in all states and territories which allow certain people to challenge a deceased person's will um, where there's been adequate inadequate provision made for their maintenance and support. Um, but where a court makes what's generally known as a family provision order in that situation, it, it's normally going to be limited to the assets that actually form part of that estate. But in New South Wales only, so the notional estate rules... Um, they apply and they can also allow the court to make those orders out of certain assets that don't form part of the person's estate. And that could include super benefits that would have gone instead of to the estate straight to a beneficiary. Um, And it it basically allows them to be um, deemed to be a notional part of the estate and taken into account for those rules. Okay, so in what situations can an amount be included in the notional estate in New South Wales? yeah, so one of the key um, situations where that can occur is is where there's been what's known as a relevant property transaction. 
um, in a certain period before uh, the deceased's death. And depending on the circumstances, that time frame can either be one year or three years. But at a very high level, those relevant property transactions will include certain transactions that lead to amounts not being included in the estate where they otherwise would be. Okay, so what is this case and why is it important? Uh, yes, so potentially important for, uh, for Super and SMSFs. Um, so the case is um, Benz v Armstrong. It was in the New South Wales Supreme Court. And there was a, a few things going on, but among the other things involved was that the deceased uh, left all of his superannuation proceeds directly to his spouse via a binding death benefit nomination. So I just picked you up there. You, you said this is relevant for SMSFs. Is, I would imagine this is relevant for all super funds, this case as well? Yeah, sorry, I, I should have made that clear. So superannuation and SMSF, so all, okay. all funds. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so Ben's and Armstrong. So I've seen enough cases <laughs> involving family disputes, right? So I'm guessing you're going to tell me there was a dispute and some of the beneficiaries lodged a family provision claim that also impacted the death benefit paid under a binding nomination. Am I guessing correctly there? Yeah, pretty much exactly as you expected. (laughs) So as as well as making a family provision order out of the deceased's actual estate, the court found that the super proceeds that were directed directly to the, the spouse were part of the notional estate because of and this is this is critical because of the deceased's failure to revoke the death benefit nomination that was in place in favour of his spouse and put in place a replacement nomination. Um, so the, the court found that was a relevant property transaction. And in terms of that time frame, the time frame for that transaction was actually at the date of death. Right. So it's within the, the, the three years. So first of all, I'm assuming here we've got kids and a spouse that's not the kid's parent. That's right. So a second spouse, yep, okay. So, you know, I've seen so many disputes involving self-managed funds where there's where's a second spouse and, and kids from a previous relationship. So that's pretty much I think if I'm a financial or estate planning lawyer and I see that kind of state situation, it so often ends in tears. The other thing that I find really interesting you're telling me here is that if I went and made a binding death benefit nomination to direct the money away from the estate to, let's say, in this case, the second spouse, then that's a relevant property transaction potentially subject to the notional estate rules. But also, if I didn't do anything, so the simple fact that I didn't go and revoke and replace that binding death benefit nomination with a binding death benefit no- nomination to, to, say, pay my estate, then because I didn't do that, there's a relevant property transaction as well. Yeah, that, that's what this case really highlights. It's, it's not just the making of a binding death nomination to direct super benefits somewhere else other than the estate that's that transaction, but it's also the potential failure to cease to have that in place, in other words, revoke it and put in place uh, alternative arrangement which, which would see it form part of the estate. Right, so this is important you wanna, for a whole bunch of reasons. Do you want to... Yeah, I think this just confirms that in New South Wales, you know, even where a member's benefits have had a binding nomination in place for some time to pay a death benefit directly to a dependent individual, for example, longer than three years, which, um, you know, many, you can do in many funds these days, um, that in itself may not prevent the benefit being available as part of the estate and able to be 
covered by a family provision order. Right. And I suppose the other thing to note here is this is only relevant for, you know, assets that potentially become come under the, the New South Wales um, um, success, is it succession laws? I can't remember. Under under these rules. So if you live outside of New South Wales and you don't have any assets located in, in New South Wales, we don't need to worry about these rules. That's right. Yeah. New South Wales is the only, in their succession act, they're the only state that currently has them. Right. Terrific. Okay. Well, that pretty much sums it up. That's all our latest, latest news for this month. Um, thanks, guys. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Craig. And thanks, everyone. See you next month. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please note these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors as a source of general information. All scenarios considered during this podcast were purely hypothetical and for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. You should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decisions and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be accurate and reliable, no person, including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited, accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.